From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Jenny Vincent, a lecturer at Texas A&M University, Kingsville, joins me to provide a deeper perspective on the immigration crisis currently on our southern border. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Perhaps there is no current issue as complicated in its application because it is stained with the worst aspects of the American narrative, like illegal immigration and political asylum on the southern border. I word it that way because that is how they are commingled in our public discourse. It is an issue that is fueled by the invectives of racism othering, and scapegoating. I've invited Jenny Vincent on the public rally to discuss the complexity of the issue on both sides of the southern border. Vincent is a lecturer at Texas A&M University, Kingsville, honored to have her on. Jenny Vincent, welcome to the public morality. Well, thank you for having me. Good morning to you. Good morning. When we look at uh, the, all the controversy surrounding the issue of immigration on the southern border right now, how do you see it? I mean, how, how would you put it a synopsis for us? The synopsis for it would be that it, it, it is a new. It, it, it's been a long-term problem. It's been happening um, uh, for for as long as I've been alive. I was born in 1958. And it precedes my birth. You know, um, one of one of the uh, the concepts of, of children crossing crossing over the border um, happened uh, uh, in in to my knowing when my grandfather, uh, the uh, Mexico had broken up uh, broken off into strife into the civil war, and my grandfather uh, grabbed the hand of his mother and his two brothers, and uh, they crossed over with a local priest and came in from. Uh, from from Mier Mexico, which is right across from uh, Rio Grande and uh, and Roma, and so it's Rio Grande, Roma, the river, and then there's Mexico. And they came across and and they trekked over to San Diego, Texas, where he landed. And uh, and and so this is this is an age-old situation that has come about because of turmoil in Mexico. And so long as there's turmoil in Mexico, there's going to be reason. For uh, for Mexico citizens to have to flee out, the academic you know uh, word for it is diaspora, you know, uh, uh, an enforced uh, migration that comes about, and and uh, these people have a need for diaspora, and and honestly, it's nothing new. This is absolutely nothing new. However, we are seeing it uh, be more coordinated, and we are seeing it uh, be a lot bigger. And the coordination, and in this case, the coordination, in the case of my grandfather, the coordination was through the church and uh, Father Pedro. There was actually, believe it or not, in front of the church where my grandparents did meet and they married, um, where, my, where my grandfather and his family landed, there is, a, there is an effigy to, to, uh, uh, to Father Pedro 
who was uh, um, uh, who was a humanitarian who kept risking his life to go bring people out of war, and um, and he's there, and he was one of the people that that coordinated that type of uh, diaspora, but now the diasporas are coordinated by the federal government themselves. So it's the, the government of Mexico who who will coordinate the migrations of, of uh, the large amount of immigrants that we're seeing now. And so you have that piece. And so then, uh, as you well know, um, we are a, um, my words, not yours, a microwave society. So we don't like to, we, there's a tendency not to go too deep on complex issues. So... We see the optics, uh, what, what, are, what are going on now, the history that's brought us to this moment. Uh, while we could look at the Trump administration specifically for what they're doing, would it also be fair to say that Democrats don't have clean hands on this side of the border? No, they don't have clean hands on this side of the border because um, um, we well know that the Democrats have been wanting and have been hoping that these uh, uh, enforced migrations, these diasporas, will occur so that they can go ahead and appeal to uh, Mexicans who come across the border so that they can increase their voter base. Hmm. And, the, and uh, we, we've seen that as a part of, of, uh, of, of, of the, the rank-and-file uh, plan of the Democratic Party or in party is to pander to the Mexicans so that they can increase border base, their voter base. And then, uh, then on the flip side, uh, while it may not be fair, uh, we could also, one could, could, could conclude, uh, the president, President Trump, has helped solidify this narrative given the optics of uh, what the nation is currently witnessing based on, you know, we had Charlottesville, um, he's described people coming across in very deplorable ways, called certain nations of color, asshole nations. So he's helped the Democrats' cause in that sense. Would that be fair? It would be fair, but it's not necessarily conclusive because, Mr. Williams, if you look at, 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 uh, at, at the Obama administration in, in 2014, um, all he said was, you know, well, you know, if, uh, if, if immigrants make it out here and they've got children, we're going to have to be humanitarian towards the children, and we're going to have to take a closer look at children. And the key buzzword to, the, to uh, Mexico's, and, and, and the key of those of us that have been watching the migration for several decades, it's people that live in Mexico that live in Mexico are Mexican, and, and they come across, and, and they're they're Mexican citizens, and uh, the the acronym for those that that are other than Mexican are the OTMs. So that there's a lot of OTMs that come across, you know, the border, and those are El Salvadorian, Guatemalans, and Hondurans, and Chinese people, and we well know that Chinese are a plethora of people. And there are a lot of people that come in through there. Venezuela, once upon a time, under Hugo Chavez, when he was living, um, they were uh, training al-Qaeda uh, in his land. He was very angry with the Bush administration. He was training al-Qaeda on his, on his kind. And whether we like it or not, I can stand next to some of my Arab um, uh, 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 fellow uh, people, humans, and, and they look just like us. They look just like us as, as Hispanics. 
and so it's very difficult uh, to to tell a Hispanic person from uh, from from an Arab person, and so they 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 come in as OTMs very easily, and so and so the, and when uh, when Obama said, well, if you come in with children, we'll have to be humanitarian about it and look at it. And he got the throng of children, and he got stuck with what was the um, barely, he barely missed it by a little bit, the 60,000 children that ended up at the border in 2014. So this is nothing new, and it doesn't take a lot of provocation for Mexico to say, I'm going to open up my borders, and it's an interesting concept that Mexico has borders and that Mexico has gates to Central America because they don't want the OTMs coming in without their permission. They don't want to be flooded, nor do they want to be responsible for the OTMs. No, um, in uh, 2014, I wrote an article that's still floating around the Internet called Mi Casa No Es Tu Casa, My Home Is Not Your Home. That's a, a very endearing term of hospitality among um, those of us that are Texican. Um, I'm eighth-generation Texican, uh, be, having been uh, uh, born and raised here in, Texaco, in, in Texas, but uh, still holding tight to the culture of, uh, of the Spanish and, and Mexican-American. And, and so we know that um, the hospitality of the home is, is sacrosanct. We, 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 we hold. We make sure that as soon as someone walks in, there's a plate on the table and there's coffee being put on or something being served up. And that's not the hospitality that was extended to people that come in across Mexico. And, uh, and when, they, when, when families with children in 2014 made it across Mexico into the borders, um, 59,000 children, close to 60,000 children, that was without the adults, were housed in encampments, very with cages, exactly the way that they have accused um, uh, the Trump administration, except for in those days they really were cages. They were not really actually camps the way that we have right now. And, uh, and to my knowing, having checked up on it lately, we still have children that are there. Because the only people that Obama let go of were the OTMs, because they were actually refugees of war. And the people that came in from Mexico, they didn't have a war refugee status, and so they kept them there. And so um, this is that's not new under the sun. And it doesn't take provocation of name-calling, and it doesn't take provocation of we hate your president. It just takes um, the anarchy of what is Mexico now. So, so from your perspective, should, should, what should we do, and I'll speak specifically to the people who are seeking asylum? I mean, should we make a distinction? How, how, if, if, if you were queen for a day, how would we adjudicate that? If I, I know that you're interviewing me, but I would like to turn around and I would like to ask you a question. If, if, if as a sovereign nation we have chosen not to partake in the civil wars of other countries like Syria and, uh, well, we interfered with Libya, but in the civil wars of other Arab countries and in the civil wars of other countries in the planet that are going to get us caught in quagmires, you know, that we don't want to get caught in, into, into, into that type of, of a situation, then why are we interfering in the civil wars of the Central American countries? Why are we interfering by having taken their people? 
and what vested interest do we have in having taken their people? We have uh, a vested interest in taking the people of Cuba because of the centralized location of Cuba and because of uh, the uh, because of the the, the, the military uh, location that that Cuba sits in. It, it, it's a mighty risk uh, to to allow for other countries to put. Um, uh, missiles and silos and things of that of, uh, uh, in Cuba, but why are, are we interfering with uh, with the interior machinations of the government of Central America? I, I think you answered it. I, th- I think you, you let me off the hook, and I, I, I appreciate it uh, with, with a very strong rhetorical question. Um, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Jenny Vincent, a lecturer at Texas A&M Kingsville, on immigration issues on around America's southern border. Uh, and, Ginny, I recall, what, 2001, uh, Vincent President, Mexican President Vincente Fox spoke, yes. spoke uh, at a joint session of Congress uh, about the need for immigration reform. It was well-received, and then shortly after that, 9-11 happened, and then suddenly we sort of crafted a policy that commingled the people coming across the southern border with those who came legally on jet planes uh, from al-Qaeda. And we've sort of been sort of hamstrung in that policy for, what, 17 years. And I wonder how you saw that. We were friends with, with Vicente Fox. Vicente Fox was an ally. Not only am I a lecturer at Texas A&M, Kingsville, but I was a 20-year uh, newspaper writer and editorialist and, and wrote uh, on um, global um, e- e- editorial uh, national policies, you know, and foreign national policies. And so that's where I come, you know, by the gravitas to be able to speak on foreign policies. Um, and, and so, um, you know, when uh, Vicente Fox, uh, was in administration. We were friends with him. We met with him on a regular basis. We helped him politically. There was a time uh, when uh, Vicente Fox was uh, was uh, was going to step down, and he was going to be uh, when he was going to be replaced. It's it's legendary. It's a part of legend that we um, that the the Clinton administration sent uh, sent one of uh, one of their politicos to go help him form a, a game plan for how to uh, for how to uh, uh, rally the masses away from from a from a populist. And so I mean we were friends. We were friends with Vicente Fox, and and 9/11 was a game changer. 9/11 is one of those uh, uh, points in our calendars where the world changed, and we did have need for uh, for craftsmen, and we didn't have enough craftsmen, um, the plumbers and the builders and the and the electricians and things of that nature. We just didn't have enough uh, laborers that were going to be able to take care of all of the infrastructures that, that we had, and uh, and we did, did we did need that. Now your question. So we did have a lot of influx of immigrants that came in at that time. To come and help out, and we needed that. But you're you're asking me. Could you repeat the question regarding the um, the Arabs? What was what was well, the question regarding that? Well, mm-hmm. we we commingled we commingled the policy. The, the immigration became sort of forefront uh, after 9/11, as if the people who struck down the towers came from the southern border, when in fact they came illegally on on jet planes, and we. For some reason, we don't seem to be able to have shaken loose from that uh, 
thought process. I got you. And you're absolutely right. But they, uh, they didn't come to us on jet planes. They didn't. They boarded planes in the United States after having learned how to fly planes in the United States. They attended a school flight in Florida, if you remember the history of, of 9-11. Jenny, if I can just cut you off. I just meant when they arrived to America, they arrived here legally from where, where, from their various destinations. That's what, that's got what, you. Yeah. I got you. Yeah, yeah but we did have, though— um, oh, we did have a, uh, we did have some some migration coming through Mexico that were OTM that were Arab and that were nefarious that were uh, that that uh, were um, that were Arab possibly um, that were not just Arab I apologize that were that were, were Al Qaeda um, and 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 coming in through Mexico that were coming in through Mexico during that time period. And it's, it's a good point to make, you know, the concept of nefarious. You know, um, by and large, the vast percentage of uh, immigrants that come in that are not a part of gangs, that, are not, that have not been released from prison, you know, and that have not been, you know, um, uh, that are not fleeing Mexico because they've got problems in Mexico, that's a small percentage. The vast majority of the, the people that come as immigrants, whether they're from Mexico or whether they're OTMs coming in from China or from Central America as, uh, as, uh, as needing asylum from war, um, uh, they have no nefarious uh, intentions towards us. What they are is just a throng of people that we just can't seem to absorb. So in your, in your view, can we have an effective public policy that at its core is still uh, titillating us with fear. Is that possible? No, I don't think that that's possible. What we have right now is, um, and, and, and I, I would like to remind your listeners right now that I am a, a journalist and, and that I try to keep um, uh, uh, that I try to keep neutral and that I try to, to, to tell it like it is. And I try to say, uh, to say what I see on both sides. And what I see on both sides right now is, is this, this, is a, this is a tug of war for the fabric of America, and we would like to tear it. There was once a time that we, that we were afraid of tearing the fabric of America, and now we want to tear it. We want to. And and uh, and through the tug of war, we're uh, we're we're trying to to assure that we um, that when we rip it, that we end up with a with a large portion of it, so that we can go ahead and own the large portion of America, or the mindset of America, so we can go forward. And immigration is just a part of the parlay. It's just a part of the play. And and uh, because if you think about it, it, um, it it's the same people who were uh, clamoring and who will clamor. It's not, this is not past tense, this is present tense, and yet they play this game, who will tell us that we need to have zero population growth for the sake of, of our environment and for the sake of, of the saving of our planet and for, and for the sake of sustainability. And, and yet, you know, they'll, uh, they'll warn us that we need to not have any children, and yet we're willing to take in 250,000 children in one weekend. Two hundred and fifty thousand humans in one weekend, uh, and so I, I look at it from the standpoint of this is this is an internal um, civil. This is a civil war with a lot of civility right now. Uh, if 
by some miracle, um, rationality overcame everyone on Capitol Hill and the White House, and um, and we had a humane immigration policy. We we still America, in my view, still has this unsavory history. Of, of the need to other somebody, some group. It's, it's been consistent th- throughout our history. And um, with some of the some of your work uh, as an educator in Texas, um, you see some of that starting in ninth grade. Is, is that right? It, it, well, it starts long before that, but it does affect the students in the ninth grade, and we do have a tendency to want to other other people. You know, and uh, and and th- it's not going to be any different for uh, for the immigrants that come in. They they think that they're coming, and uh, it, the interesting thing is uh, they're turning the the, the tables and, uh, on the United States of America, and the immigrants are turning America into others because they're keeping their own nationality. They're keeping their own. They they they, they pledge allegiance to their own country. And they, they don't want to join the United States. They don't want to be citizens of the United States. You don't see anybody running for amnesty. When was the last time we had amnesty? Reagan. After that, we had amnesty nobody, nobody took up on. And, and, uh, and, and, and you don't see anyone that's clamoring to come in and, and, and want to be a part of. What we have right now are people that are commuting into the United States for a job. And, and, and they, they don't want to pledge allegiance to the country, and they make Americans the other people. But what you're talking about is um, uh, the concept of the hyphenated people in the United States, and I think that's where the problem is regarding immigration. You know, um, we have African Americans that, 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 uh, that were hyphenated um, from African and Americans after the Civil War in antebellum, and they became um, they became citizens apart, and they were literally legislated by the Supreme Court to be citizens apart. They were not citizens cleanly of the United States. They had the apart concept, and they were African Americans. And when the Mexicans, in in the course of, of uh, the U.S. and American War, when uh, when when America won the war, when they won the war. And uh, the Americans that were in the five states, Colorado across to Arizona, across to New Mexico and California, Texas, whenever, whenever that was won, all the people that were patriated onto, the, onto those lands um, remained. They just stayed. They, they had been there a part of that, of, that, uh, of, about, of that land for such a long time, and they owned the land, they were working the land, or they were working with people that had the land, and they stayed. And, uh, and interestingly... It would be several generations. That was 15 years after the after the after the slaves were freed. Then we had, you know, the war and uh, with uh, with Mexico, and we had this uh, this this situation where all of a sudden we had the ambiguity of the Mexicans. And so the Mexicans are on the soil, and they continue to be on the soil. And in 19 uh, in uh, in in the 1930s, we had. The um, I'm, I'm going to have to look that up uh, with us, and I would appreciate it if we go through, we look that up and make sure that we have Salvatierra uh, uh, del Rio, del Rio, Texas, versus the family Salvatierra. And, and ironically, Salvatierra means save the land in Spanish. 
um, they had a case that went to the Supreme Court where they um, they they were being sent to, to three different schools. There were three different um, segregated schools at that time. There were one for for the African Americans. There were one for the white people, and there was one for Mexicans. And they um, the Mexicans pretty much got the whatever was left over from the other two schools. And so they they went to court and they made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And they asked for full citizenship, and at that time, GI Forum and LULAC for, uh, joined with them, and they fought to be white white citizens. They wanted to be the other white people, and the Supreme Court shut them down and said, "No, we're going to throw you into the category of um, the, the the freed slaves, and you will be known as um, uh, Mexican Americans, and you will have the hyphen." And the hyphen was given to us. Nobody wanted that hyphen. Nobody understood what the hyphen was about until much later. In 1954, four years before I was born, Pedro Hernandez um, accident uh, in in a brawl in a in a bar in Edna, Texas. And if you look up the map, look up at Edna, Texas. It's uh, pretty near the center of um, of Texas by the Victoria Houston area. You'll you'll see where that was. You know, Edna, Texas. He was in a bar fight, and uh, uh, through through the course of, the, of that brawl, uh, he killed a man. And they were going to throw him in jail and just let him rot because he was a Mexican, and he was born and raised in Edna, Texas. And he ha- he was he was uh, he, he he was afforded due process by being a citizen of the United States. But according to the according to the um, to the government of Texas, he was Mexican. Because it was an undecided uh, a situation as to whether his citizenship was in place or not. So LULAC and GI Forum again went before the Supreme Texas and took Bethel Hernandez before the Supreme Texas. And much to the chagrin of the LULAC and GI Forum, they have in their memoirs that the Supreme Texas turned to their pages and asked, what is this person? What is the status of this person? Because we don't understand that. The Supreme Court did not understand what the status of Pedro Hernandez was in 1954. And it was through the course of that, of, of, uh, that um, court case that they decided that uh, we were, again, designated to be Mexican-American. And then, uh, and then come the, 1990, the 1990 census. And the census was so convoluted because we had uh, so many people from so many lands that spoke Spanish that the U.S. Census Bureau decided, well, you know, to heck with all this. We can't handle, you know, all of these uh, Spanish-speaking people. We're just going to throw them under one lump. And they created the word Hispanic, people who speak Spanish. And they created that word, and they and and in essence removed us from citizenship and threw us back into the concept of immigration because we were Hispanic again. Hmm. Uh, and now uh, here we are in, in in 2018, and I remember when we talked the other day. You also talk, right. talked about some of the students. By the time they get to ninth grade, how many uh, um, Mexican? I'll, I'll I'll use the hyphenation just for for our audience's sake. How many sure. Mexican American students? Is Texas losing by the time they reach the ninth grade, and and just continue and give me those statistics all the way up? Uh, sure, and this is um, this is definitely as a result of the migration of of uh, of uh, uh, people from Mexico. 
that we have so many Mexicans that, that are coming in and we're continually having to reboot the, uh, the educational system to, to make room for bilingual education. And bilingual education became, has become an industry at the state of Texas, and, and, we, and we definitely have a lot of people that make a lot of money off of creating programs for it for our schools and, and for running programs for it in our schools. And along, uh, uh, caught along into it are people that were native-born. And, uh, and, and that, that spoke English, but because they had Hispanic surnames and they needed to be able to make these classes, if you had a Hispanic surname, you were put into a bilingual education class. And uh, the, the end result of it was, that according to, uh, to Raymond Paredes, uh, the, tw the 2015 uh, Commissioner of Higher Education, when he spoke to us at Texas A&M University Kingsville in a seminar before the superintendents, he told us that out of all of the incoming freshmen that were Hispanic, that were, that were uh, excuse me, all the, all the incoming kindergartners that were Hispanic that were starting school, that only 49% um, were actually making it to the ninth grade, leaving that 59% dynamic of failure that, that, uh, that you spoke to. And, and, um, and, uh, and then 49% that were left were graduating. They were making it through the ninth grade and graduating. And that dynamic happened because they were thrown into bilingual education school, and the schools were no longer beholden to test them with, uh, with the standardized testing. And if you're, not st if you're not going through the standardized testing, that they don't need to graduate you, and they don't owe you a graduation, and they don't owe you a degree anymore because you didn't, you didn't uh, run through all the right fire to um, to prepare you for any type of post-secondary education. And so of those, though, that are, that do make it through the standardized testing and do make it through to, uh, to graduate, only 3% were opting to go to post-secondary education. 3% out of the full 100% of children that started school in Texas were actually swimming upstream like the salmon in, in, in Alaska, and making it actually to post-secondary education. So uh, uh, of that group that, that makes it to you, that, that, that have the privilege of having um, Jenny Vincent as an instructor, um, are, from your observation, are there challenges presented to those students who actually do make it to post-secondary because of this education? That's, uh, the way the, Absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. Absolutely. Um, and uh, mi nombre es Jenny Rios Vincent y soy completamente proficiente en el, en el idioma de español. I completely speak Spanish, and I am of the area. I was born and raised in Alice, Texas. I went through what these students are going through. I understand what uh, the concept is, you know, of, of uh, feeling deficient, of being told that it's never enough, that, that, uh, that the table is over there. And you can try to make it to the table, but good luck. The table always seems to keep moving for us, you know, as uh, as as uh, Mexican Americans in the area. But what happens is that um, we uh, we we the the university sees them immediately as not being prepared for the system. There has to be certain uh, certain classes that they had to have taken in order to make it. To, through the university, they have to have uh, uh, family support, which they honestly don't often have. They have to have a certain amount of financial support from the family, which often they don't have because they do come from 
from lower socioeconomic uh, parents in, in our area, and their, their uh, opportunity to make it is greatly diminished you know, by, uh, by the things that happened before they, even got to Cal- before they even got to the university. And then there's the idea that, um, that, uh, uh, that, that the culture itself, this is, this is a difficult thing for me to say, but the culture itself doesn't understand the concept of Spanish because the vast, by and large the vast majority of Mexican-Americans in this area have not participated in post-secondary education, and they don't understand it. So it's like, why don't you just go ahead and go to work and earn money now rather than go to college and stick your face in a book for four years and, uh, and then hope to get a job in four years when you can be gainfully employed now? Mm. So there's a cultural disconnect also that adds to that dynamic. Uh, before we, before we move on, I just want to I want to back up just a minute. Do do you have any data on uh, what happens to the what, was it 49 percent, 59 percent that don't make it to the ninth grade, whatever that number was? Um, do you have data on that group? What happens to that group? That group has been an uh, a myth. You know mythology. You know it, it, there are so many of us that that would like to know what's happening to that group. Are they are are they uh, just being absorbed by the communities? This is a really small and rural area. We're in South Texas. We're we're in uh, deep South Texas, uh, uh, south of Corpus Christi, south of of San Antonio, sandwiched in between uh, the valley and San Antonio. And and, uh, and and there's not a lot of opportunity. There's only a Walmart per city, one Walmart per city. Uh, no Starbucks in Alice, Texas. You know, uh, there's very little opportunity for them to actually go to work. So it's very possible that they're moving away into larger cities. It's very possible that they are uh, becoming a part of the fabric of, of their parents, that they, that they are uh, that they are stay at home. I know that uh, within my family, that some of my cousins are, are migrant. That they that we have a lot of migrant um, uh, 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 family members that, that do uh, travel to where where the crops are. But you don't have to travel very far. The crops are being born in Texas. I have a lot of, of uh, cousins that pick watermelon and and uh, generationally pick watermelon. And uh, and that work at the King Ranch, and uh, that uh, that that uh, work their own that work their own land as well. And so uh, you know that the, they just get they just get absorbed into into the fabric. But we are talking about a huge amount of population. And uh, Greg Abbott put out in uh, 2015 at the same time that we were looking at the dismal figures. And Greg Abbott of, is the and Greg Abbott is the governor of the Texas. governor of the state of Texas put out. Um, you know, um, uh, figures that said that we were going to need for a good 49% of our population to be college educated in order to be able to cover the types of jobs that we were creating for the state of Texas. And and uh, you and I talked about this, the commercials that went out. Right, when, right. When we knew that we hadn't made it, that we didn't have, we didn't, had not created enough educated people within the state of Texas. We started adverta- advertising across to California and to other states, send us your educated send us you're educated because we need them when 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 you're when one could conclude that you are ig- ignoring a talent pool 
are in your home base? We are. Mm. Right. We are. And, and uh, one, of the, one of the reasons, in my opinion, and this is uh, my academic opinion, uh, that, uh, that, we are, that, that we are ignoring and the, that, we are, um, that we are flushing away it is, it is uh, the, the best way to put it, that we are flushing away uh, uh, the, 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 the fund of knowledge that comes with these, uh, the, with these young people that uh, didn't make it through the system uh, through high school, is that the, the system didn't prepare them for college, but the, co- but the university could prepare them for the university. If we would take and redesign the first year of university and give these the students an opportunity to catch up with what will be university in the freshman year and then actually immerse them into the tougher part of the university, you know, through the sophomore, the freshman, and then uh, the, the junior and the senior and the senior and the senior year, because the fact remains that our, our Hispanic students are taking more than four years to graduate from the university. They're taking five, six, and seven years. So why not use the first year to acclimate them and to, and, and to prepare them for what they didn't get in the, in the high school year and go ahead and give them that tether up and give them that hand up to be able to make it into post-secondary? Well, when, when you look at the way, just from, from, from your perspective as an educator, the way Hispanic students are uh, 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 being addressed educationally, and then you, and then we look. We talked earlier about some uh, America's, uh, for lack of a better word, sort of disjointed immigration policy. Do you see any similarities between those two that that aren't working on either side? Okay, on either side, meaning the similarities like our, immig- our hyphenated people. Our, no, our immigration policy is obviously not working. Uh, yeah. um, how how Texas is educating, you know, Hispanic students is obviously not working. Do you see any similarities between um, those two phenomena? Yes, I do, and and the similarity. Um, you and I started this conversation because um, I've, I I, I want to sound a clarion call. I, you know, as as a journalist, somebody who's who's looking at the panoramic scheme of uh, of a uh, scenario of the United States, and I and, and I wish I could climb on my rooftop, all five feet of me, just you know, get a ladder and climb on the rooftop, and say, America, wake up! You know, uh, we cannot, we can no longer afford to play games uh, politically, and we can no longer afford to tear the fabric of the United States because it's got enough rips in it already. You know, we don't, we don't need to. And, and it may take us a while to be able to put it back together. The fact is, is that we do have uh, our hyphenated uh, population. We've got the African-Americans, and we know what the struggles are within the African-Americans. I told you we've got struggles within the Mexican-American community. It wasn't that long. It just wasn't that long before we were dismissed completely. We were, we were, the, invisible. We were the invisible people as, as, as Mexican-American people. 
I told you that Cesar Chavez wrote in his in his own memoirs that he didn't know what he was going to do with the Texas uh, Mexican Americans when he was trying to put together the the strikes, you know, for uh, for migrants in 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 California and across Colorado and and New Mexico and 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 and, and Arizona because uh, the the people from Texas. He used the word humilde. They, they were uh, they were they were submissive. They were quiet, and he didn't know what he was going to do with those people. And and so that you know, you, you look at us in that in that vein. We we work hard. We keep our head down. We just keep right on going. We keep right on moving forward. And 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 you've got the and so you've got us. But there, there's going to be a point in time where we're going to say that's enough of that. We've been doing all we can to try to get to the table of America to try to remove the hyphen so that we can be Americans. We've got LULAC. We've got GI Forum that keeps promoting that. We need to be Americans. We've got to. We've got to acclimate into the English. We've got to make sure that we're that we are educating into the fabric of, of, of the society of English. That's their mantra, LULAC and GI Forum. And it, it's not working. It's not happening fast enough. You look at the African Americans and look at the plight of African Americans. Why was it necessary in 2018 for African Americans to do what I just said, jump on top of the rooftop of, of, of the highest buildings in America and have to scream out to, across the American landscape, Black Lives Matter? Why did they have to do that? Because it was necessary. Because they don't see themselves as mattering. They don't matter to rank and file uh, corporate America. They don't matter to governmental America. They don't matter to the rank and file American, to the non-hyphenated Americans. They don't matter to the Americans at the table. And they're seeing the table move further and further away from them, too. And the clarion call, the warning that I'd like to say to America is we need to be careful about the games that we're playing. And we, okay, games that we're playing. We need to be careful about, uh, about uh, what we're advocating for and wanting to bring all these immigrants for because our house is not ready when we haven't solidified the hyphenated people, the African-Americans and the Mexican-Americans, and we haven't given them a place at the table, and we're moving them further and further back to make room for these others, then we're going to have a problem with the people that have been here for generations. Um, African-Americans, uh, nine generations, ten generations that we've been here since slavery, since before then, since, but since antebellum, uh, since, uh, since um, the emancipation, nine generations, ten generations. Mexican-Americans, eight generations, nine generations. That's long enough. That's long enough. That was Jenny Vincent. We close this broadcast by commemorating the anniversary of President Kennedy's famous speech to the people of West Berlin on June 26, 1963. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, the proudest boast was Kiwis Romanus Sum. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is, Ich bin ein Berliner. I, uh, I, I appreciate 
I appreciate my interpreter translating my German. There are many people in the world who really don't understand or say they don't. What is the great issue between the free world and the communist world? Let them come to Berlin. There are some who say there are some who say that communism is the wave of the future. Let them come to Berlin. And there are some who say in Europe and elsewhere, we can work with the communists. Let them come to Berlin. And there are even a few who say that it's true that communism is an evil system, but it permits us to make economic progress. Lass sie nach Berlin in common. Let them come to Berlin. Freedom has many difficulties, and democracy is not perfect. But we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in, to prevent them from leaving us. I want to say, on behalf of my countrymen, who live many miles away on the other side of the Atlantic, who are far distant from you, that they take the greatest pride, that they have been able to share with you, even from a distance, the story of the last 18 years. I know of no town, no city, that has been besieged for 18 years, that still lives with the vitality and the force and the hope and the determination of the city of West Berlin. While the wall is the most obvious and vivid demonstration of the failures of the communist system, for all the world to see, we take no satisfaction in it, for it is, as your mayor has said, an offense not only against history, but an offense against humanity, separating families, dividing husbands and wives and brothers and sisters, and dividing a people who wish to be joined together. What is true of this city is true of Germany. Real lasting peace in Europe can never be assured 
as long as one German out of four is denied the elementary right of free men, and that is to make a free choice. In 18 years of peace and good faith, this generation of Germans has earned the right to be free, including the right to unite their families and their nation in lasting peace with goodwill to all people. You live in a defended island of freedom, but your life is part of the main. So let me ask you as I close to lift your eyes beyond the dangers of today to the hopes of tomorrow, beyond the freedom merely of this city of Berlin or your country of Germany, to the advance of freedom everywhere, beyond the wall to the day of peace with justice, beyond yourselves and ourselves, to all mankind, freedom is indivisible. And when one man is enslaved, all are not free. When all are free, then we look and look forward to that day when this city will be joined as one and this country and this great continent of Europe in a peaceful and hopeful globe. When that day finally comes, as it will, the people of West Berlin can take sober satisfaction in the fact that they were in the front lines for almost two decades. men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin, and therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Berliner. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics, North Carolina. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.